Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. So, you first. What's astonishing you? Me first. Well, I'm just really aware of um, all of the attempts to suppress of black voters uh, by states in these days. And uh, I'm really grateful for um, people like Stacey Abrams and Reverend Barber and the great work that they're doing. And and I received an article um, from a newspaper in Omaha, Nebraska about a small protest I think there might have been 30 people. It was tiny. And you look at uh, the caption there, the picture, and uh, you think, you know, I don't think this is making much of a difference. And I walked away from it. I was glad to receive uh, the picture and this article because... um, One of my good friends, Jeannie Bates, is there in the mix. She's featured very prominently in this protest march, wearing her T-shirt that says, uh, pray, preach, prophesy, and protest. Mm. Uh, uh, The UCCs, or the United Church of Christ, is uh, sporting those uh, T-shirts. And and it fits uh, my friend uh, to be a part of this protest. But I think... Most people would see this article and this picture and think, well, this doesn't make very much of a difference. And then the Holy Spirit brought to mind uh, all of Jesus' sayings about, you know, mustard seed. Mm-hmm. The kingdom is like a mustard seed, the small, insignificant thing, but becomes something uh, important and big and used by God. It b- becomes the kingdom, right? Out of a mustard mm-hmm. seed. And uh, my favorite contemporary image for the inbreaking of the kingdom is, you know, whenever I see a, a flower breaking through the concrete mm-hmm. or the asphalt, and I've just been sitting with that, and the more I sit with it, the more I am um, encouraged by people like my friend Jeannie because she'll, she'll show up at a small protest with energy and um, enthusiasm, and my takeaway is, yeah, I've got to be faithful in the small things because it matters yeah i mean if you god does small and that if you if you can't see that in scripture you're not looking i mean so when god wants to make a nation god starts with one person abram right and and when jesus comes as the messiah he doesn't start a movement he gathers 12 together and that's before you get to to um, the parables about it, right? I mean, when you look at um, just the the time and the tininess of the founding of um, the the chosen people, I mean, I just think that these are not methods that, in at least in Western culture, we don't 
we don't prize what is small and what is hidden. I mean, that's just in my mind a lot, small, hidden, lost, right? That these are, these are the ways the kingdom come. And when we despise that and when we refuse to be faithful in small things, in hidden and uncelebrated things, or to seek out things that are not immediate, <laughs> then we are forsaking our greatest treasure. And, and that is just, you know, it's like we're following the crowd and then looking for Jesus in the crowd of what is celebrated in this world, even as we know that this is a world that is run by brokenness. And so, yeah, I mean, I really love that. Like I, of all the people in the world who should have the faith to do small it should be Christians in general, and then it should be those who are leading Christians who say, we we do small, we don't despise small things. And the work of justice is always the lone voice crying out in the wilderness. And so if we are unwilling to be the lone voice, then we're going to forsake justice for expediency every time. Yeah, I often am surprised by how easily I get wrapped up in a culture of, you know, success, yeah. big, <laughs> it's got to be done with, quote unquote, excellence, and... I get surprised by small. Right. Well, and I, I by just... the power of small. By, right. And just the reality is if we... Things that the culture labels excellent are rarely going to be things of the kingdom of God. And so a lot of times... I mean, I think you've... I mean, I know this phrase isn't original to you, but you use it a lot, that we baptize our own imaginations. We say, this is what I want. And so Jesus is in it instead of really letting ourselves be reformed by the witness of scripture, particularly when... Even though we are believers, even though we are disciples, we still have wayward hearts that need to be um, conformed to the gospel. Yeah. So, yeah. Bad. So what's astonishing you? Uh, Self-delusion <laughs> is astonishing me. What? Um, well, I just, uh, um, there's a, there's a, there's a dear, dear member of our community, um, and right now um, her husband is also a dear member of their community, but she, but he is in the hospital, and he is um, suffering from COVID, and that's just terrifying, and, and he is vaccinated, and, mm. um, and I mean, COVID has always been very real to me, but I particularly in these days... Um, when Delta is raging and people are just getting so sick and the people standing on the front lines, the, the um, healthcare workers have just been so heroic for so long and they're so tired and um, they're just, we're asking so much of them and so unwilling to partner with them. And I, um, it is so difficult in these days. Like I, I've always been, a person who could be labeled naive that I really do when I, when I walk around and I see people I don't know, I generally just think like, Oh, all of these people are, are, are great people. And obviously people are made in the image of God. So they all have intrinsic eternal sacred worth. But I, um, I'm, I'm not a cynical person. And, um, I often feel very sad for people who, who because of experiences that they have had rightly view people from a, place of mistrust or skepticism that, that, I, that but that's never been me and um now that I am walking around in the world again 
and the Delta variant is raging and things are collapsing and, you know, friends, loved ones are in a perilous place. And I, I walk into the grocery store and, and I see people walking around without masks on, or I look at school board meetings and I see people just screaming about how their kids shouldn't have to wear a mask. And I just, it's devastating to me to see how deeply indifferent people are to other people's health and safety. And I suppose when we're just talking about Americans, I mean, I think I have a friend, who, um, Justin Perry, who just wrote a, a post and was talking about, like, we call it rugged individualism, right? Like, it's not altruistic individualism. It, it's not compassionate individualism. It is rugged individualism. And that's what we see, that that the, the, the message is, I'm not going to die of COVID and I don't care if you do, right? And if you're going to die of COVID, then you were weak and worthless and it doesn't matter. And and that is a, just a sad thing to confront the reality of how many people really are walking through the world in this way, that it's not that they don't care about people. I'm sure they care about their own family members a lot, but they just don't care about people they don't know. And, um, and it's sad that the mask you, you just makes it so visible um, but but then I realized that just proportionally, I mean, based on the statistics, a huge number of those people who are walking around without masks on believe themselves to be Christians, right? Um, and and I'm, we know this is so because we have Christian churches who are outlawing masks in their sanctuary, right? And sure. preachers, Christian preachers who are preaching against wearing masks and talking about faith over fear and all this kind of stuff. And I, and this is where it comes to self delusion for me is just this idea that I believe in the offensively boundless grace of Jesus Christ. So I am not um, presuming to judge whether or not um, those people authentically love Jesus, um, or certainly I believe that God saves sinners um, and ignorant fools like me, right? I'm counting on it. So I'm not questioning their eternal salvation. Um, but what I do get is there's just an incredible, astonishing amount of self-delusion if you will simultaneously believe of yourself that you're willing to pick up your cross and follow Jesus and lay down your life but you are unwilling to wear a mask in the grocery store for 10 minutes. And like the fact that people don't see the discrepancy between their actions and their self delusion of their values. Like if, if you say that you are a person who loves your neighbor as yourself, but you're unwilling to put a mask over your nose and mouth while you run an errand in order to potentially stop your vulnerable neighbor from getting sick, I, you know, that, that is astonishing to me. And I'm not even talking about vaccinations I mean, I also believe that getting a vaccination is not just about self-care, but about protecting other people. And, and I think that's wise. But I understand that if, if people have a deep distrust of, you know, big pharma and the government and, and you don't trust the vaccine and you don't want to put it in your body. I mean, that's not that's not how I see the world. But I, I don't want to live in a world where people are forced to inject themselves with medicine that they don't believe in. But a mask is not that. And so the fact that people won't put a mask on and will be proud that they won't wear a mask, but then also claim that they are the most faithful Christians of all, it just is an amazing thing to say. You you are worshiping the Bible, but you are not 
you're, you're not honoring it. You're just not reading it. Like you, I mean, this is about dying to self and um, pouring out your life for the sake of your neighbors. So even if you do believe that the mask is, you know, giving you carbon dioxide poisoning, I mean, the Christian message would say, if I need to risk my life to save the life of my neighbors, I do that. Like that's the heart that, that is the cross. And so I, you know, I just think it's just amazing. Um, and I've spent times in Christian circles where people told me in explicit terms that since I didn't worship like them, I wasn't a real Christian. So I'm, I'm really sensitive to the idea of one Christian looking at another believer and saying, I can discern that you don't authentically love the Lord. Like that's not faithful. Um, and so I'm, I'm trying not to do that. And yet I cannot help but observe that the way these, these brothers and sisters are practicing their faith is not in line with the plain truth of Jesus as expressed in the Gospels. And it's heartbreaking. What you're pointing out is that um, how we disciple people matters. Yep. Right? Jesus is the way. And Jesus has a way. Right. And we're to believe in Jesus as the way and walk in his way. And if his way is the way of love, compassion, mercy, all of those things are from me to others. It's not about me. It's not about the rugged individual. Yeah. It is about love of neighbor. Well, and I think, and we were talking about this on our walk too, like the problem is we have, and I say we, I mean, as pastors and our institutions have raised generations of Christians to believe that God wants them to be comfortable. And so whenever living out the gospel requires them to be uncomfortable and, and here it is a literal physical discomfort. It is uncomfortable to wear a mask, like not painful, but it is uncomfortable. And, and we have raised people that their Christian worldview is such that they think like, well, if it is uncomfortable, it is not of God. God wants me to be happy and comfortable at every moment. And so that is the wide road that we have sent people on. And we do it in church by, you know, not, it's not when churches become so seeker friendly that they're no longer about evangelism. They're no longer about life change. They're about making people comfortable in a space. Like I don't want people to walk into our community and feel like there's a secret code that they can't understand or that they're on probation or that they need to go through rush. Um, but I, you know, none of that. I, I want people to walk in and feel that they belong, but I also want people to walk in and find a distinctively different way of understanding the world and what constitutes the good life. And I think that that's the problem is when we bring people in and basically say, you know, in Jesus, we get the good life at a great price, basically one that Jesus paid. And now we're free to do whatever we want and to be comfortable and to look out for ourselves um, at all costs. And that is just a, I mean, it is not a surprise to know that the Christian church in America needed so much maturing. And I, and I know that I'm doing something really dangerous and probably unhealthy right now because I'm I'm having this conversation about something that somebody else is doing and I know that I have my own stuff but I also know that in the body of Christ that's why we need one another um, because we can't see the speck or the log in our own eye and so we need to 
take care of ourselves so that then we can can we can share truth with one another. So, um, but I just you know walking around and seeing these masks uh, or, or not seeing these masks um, and just knowing what that feels like to me. And I don't even have a loved one in the hospital fighting for life. And what does that feel like if you not only have lost someone or you are praying for the Lord to heal a loved one who's currently intubated and then you walk into a grocery store and people are just, you know, just, it's just such a small, small thing to ask of people. And, um, and it makes me sad. I'm astonished. I'm astonished. There's just so much work to do. Mm. So what are you thinking about? Well, (laughs) it's not my turn, but I'll go anyway. Um, so I, I'm, I'm not going to talk about the thing that we were going to talk about earlier. Another week. Sorry. Another we, week. We, okay. I, we, I, we try to have really frank uh, conversations that are just extensions of the conversations we have on our walk. But sometimes we just need to wait and push this conversation out a few weeks. But um, this past week, I'm still listening to that Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast. So good. Uh, it it's is so really good. good. And this past week, they interviewed Joshua Harris, who is the guy who wrote the book, I kissed dating Dating goodbye. Goodbye. Um, and I, I did not grow up in purity culture. Um, but I grew up adjacent to purity culture. So I, you know, my family wasn't Christian, so I chose to go to youth group and, um, the youth group that I was in was a mainline youth group. So that just, that, that was not a problem or that, that was not the center of our, uh, of the discipling that I got there, which I'm very grateful for, but I definitely had friends who grew up in purity culture. And so it's just sort of, um, indirectly, um, dealing with it there. And then I know people now, um, people in their thirties and forties who are, um, just dealing with the complications and the implications of choices they made in their early twenties based on, you know, this idea of courtship and don't date and just get married and everything will be fine. And, and what has happened, um, because of that. And so I've never read, I kissed dating goodbye, but the premise for people who don't know about it is that, um, you know, the culture's current view of sexuality is warped, agree. And, uh, so then the, um, answer (laughs) is a return to patriarchy, right? So just avoid, human sexuality at all, take no agency in your own sexuality, allow your sexuality to be controlled by your parents, let your parents choose a mate for you, um, and you court that person, but you don't date them, and you don't have any physical contact with them until after you're married. Um, And it's just straight up um, patriarchy. It's arranged marriages, and... Um, while I do believe that the hypersexualization of girls and boys is toxic, um, I think a return to the straight up patriarchy is not the answer. Um, but what, what I did not realize about that book until listening to this podcast is that the author, Joshua Harris, wrote it when he was 18. He was 18. And so this book becomes this mega phenomenon and he becomes the voice that is shaping thought around human sexuality for a generation of white evangelicals. And he was 18 years old. And 
and he not only wrote the book, but in listening to the podcast, I got a sense of how the book shaped him. So it sure, becomes I mean, he, this phenomenon. It was and, authentic. Yes. I mean, he was yes. not, you know, he, this was, and you know, it's related to something I'm thinking about for this week in preaching, but like, this was the worldview of his church. Mm-hmm. He he received it from his church. He wholeheartedly embraced it, and then he became an evangelist for it. So this was not some cynical person who was figuring out how to exploit something for economic gain. Like he just, you know, was this wonderful token that people could use of like, here, here's a young man, not a young woman, but a young man who is you know, tying into all of these values of the patriarchy. So, I mean, in some ways it would be more helpful if there's a young woman, but basically if the culture's um, myth about young men is that they're all, you know, sex-crazed, uncontrollable addicts who who cannot control themselves if they see a bra strap, to have a young man say, no, I don't want anything to do with sexual contact until it's within the covenant of marriage, that's just a very valuable thing, much in the same way that I think... Um, sort of the current leader of the Proud Boys is an Afro-Latino man. And people say, well, how can that be? You know, it's it's perfect for that group because if Absolutely. you can get mm-hmm. someone who essentially would be oppressed by the ideology to internalize it and begin to endorse it, then that becomes a really effective spokesperson. So so that, you know, this is why if he had been a 40-year-old man writing that book, it would not nearly have had the impact of an 18-year-old saying, young man saying, I do not wish to have sex or any sexual contact with any girl until my parents pick my wife for me, right? It was just solid gold. Um, and so, but I just... And listening, again, I didn't know a lot about him. I certainly didn't know his age. And then he was discipled by a leader in a big evangelical church. C.J. Mahaney. Yes, and then became a leader in a big evangelical church, megachurch, and then sort of went through a crisis in his 30s or early 40s. And then at that point went to seminary. And that was astonishing to me just to think about that. I've been thinking about this a lot because on the one hand, what I think is so powerful and true about Jesus and the power of the gospel is that Jesus is not, does not need to be mediated through any human institution, right? So we, it's not just that, you know, I get frustrated within our mainline denomination that there's this idea that the only people who are qualified and approved to preach or to administer the sacraments are people who have a seminary degree And it's not that I'm against having a seminary degree, but I know that there's a certain amount of agency and privilege that you have to have to get it. And I do not think that God only gives revelation and only um, gives wisdom and only gives anointing to people who have been to seminary. And I I think that's one of the things that is so countercultural and attractive to me about the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus is no respecter of persons. And so, you know, that that's an important thing that I always want to hold on to. And I think about that a lot when I'm in my community that, you know, I have certain wisdom and experience and gifts that I've been given for the sake of this community, and I want to share them faithfully. But I also know that everyone in this community can be my spiritual teacher if I let them, right? Right. So I believe in that. 
But looking at this idea of Josh Harris as the 18-year-old who becomes the expert on human sexuality for a generation and then becomes the leader of a megachurch and, you know, with no formal training at all um, is just kind of the shadow side of when that goes to an extreme of when there's a person who says me all by myself with the Holy Spirit, I know more than all of these other people and I don't need anyone else's feedback or correction. I have nothing to learn from them. It's me and Jesus. We're gonna, and and, you know, and this young, well, I mean, I guess he's a peer of ours now, Joshua Harris, you know, you listen to him talk, he actually does sound quite humble, right? So he does not, he, he is not an egomaniac. So what's interesting about that is you see that it was the community who wanted a sage on a stage, right? They wanted one anointed, essential stand-in Jesus that they could go to. You know, it wasn't him going out and saying, I alone can teach you. It was people following the crowd and saying, look, everyone's listening to this guy, so he must be the one to listen to, so I'm going to listen to him too. And in the podcast, he talked about how he was protected from critical voices after Mm -hmm. his book came out. Lots of people started responding to it in critical ways. And I I think he told a story about being in Barnes and Noble and picking up someone's Mm -hmm. book and it mentioned him in his book and it was critical. And he went to his mentor pastor friend, CJ Mahaney and said, Hey, this is, this is troubling me. And basically he said, don't worry about that. If if you're going to be a real leader, you have to ignore criticism. And um, instead of taking the criticism into his thinking, he further held it away. And then when that dam broke, it broke him. Right. And I, I think that's what's so interesting just to play with the nuance of all of this, right? That I do not believe that institutions should be set up as kind of demigods who become the ultimate arbitrators of where God is or is not in the world. I I really rail against that. And at the same time, I also don't believe that single anointed individuals with no accountability um, should should do that as well. And so, you know, just living with that tension of um, whatever, not not really both and as much as neither nor, right? And um, And also that idea of, I mean, you and I both understand what it's like to feel called to to lead in a particular way or to work to create a particular community and at times when there are lots of voices telling you this is dumb this is stupid this is wrong this is unfaithful this is foolish go do something reasonable and respectable and you really do have to say i'm not going to listen to those voices but before you stop listening to them you listen to them right so so you take it in you discern it, you pray about it, you really do the work of considering with fear and trembling. And then you say, not this person is garbage, but this is just not, this isn't truth. It's, it may be very sincerely and authentically believed to be truth, but this isn't truth. And so I'm going to set this aside and walk on. And, and I think, you know, it's tough because on the one hand, when CJ Mahaney says, Hey, if you're going to be a leader, you have to not be so sensitive to criticism. He's not wrong, but also you, you and also you do have to be sensitive to criticism, right? And I think that's what's so hard is so often in life, we want these absolutes. And in 
they, they don't, they very rarely exist. And I think what we want are absolutes because absolutes make, give us control and give us independence. And when we recognize that there really aren't very many absolutes, there are some, thou shall not kill, I think is, is an absolute. Um, I mean, there are some, thou shall not gossip. That's an absolute. Um, but I, you know, there, there are not as many as you would think. And, and I think what that forces us to do is be more vulnerable to the Holy Spirit and more humble than is comfortable to us. And that's why we buck against it. And we feel like this is a, a design flaw, but I think it's actually a feature. You know, God did not want Adam and Eve to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we go like, why? Why, wouldn't that be helpful if they could just know what was good and what was evil? And God did not want that. And I, I puzzle about that a lot. And I think it's because God knew that we would use that fruit as a substitute for relationship. And that is not, that's not the design. Um, so anyway, but I just, the idea that as much as I think that, you know, do not despise the young and, you know, I read the book of Jeremiah. I understand that God powerfully uses young people. And I know that this could sound like a get off my lawn kind of moment, but I also just think like, well, I mean, of course this young man did such great damage because he was 18. Like who thought that an 18 year old should be the expert voice for generations of people making these incredibly intimate and formative uh, decisions. I, but I guess maybe an, only an 18-year-old could be that unnuanced about it all. I don't know. I can't believe yes. I didn't know that. And unfortunately, when he hit a crisis of faith, right. when, his, when his faith had become deconstructed to the point where he no longer believed, he didn't have anyone to go to. Right. He didn't have a community. Um, and I think that's so important for us to see in this season where we're wrestling with a pandemic, social and political issues. I think the, the context in which we're now living, this moment in history is deconstructing many people's faith. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's necessarily a a bad thing. I think um, what's being deconstructed in many cases, traditions that have been wrapped around the text Mm -hmm. and the church needs to be very intentional about helping people rebuild faith. Right. And I think we talk a lot about, I don't have faith in my faith. I have faith in Jesus. I don't have faith in the Bible. I have faith in Jesus, who is the word of God. And I don't have faith in the institution of the church. Even though I believe it's the body of Christ, I have faith in Christ. And so I just think it's so hard, though, because scripture and our community and the things we believe are so tangible and accessible to us. And they obviously are the way that we most often experience God. It becomes very difficult to remember that there is a transcendent God beyond all of these three foci, which are, you know, are not bad. It, you know, that I'm um, to say, you know, there are people who put their faith in money. There are people who put their faith in violence. There are people who put their faith in power, you know, so 
these are obviously intrinsically evil things or uh, tools of the evil one. But to say even good things like scripture and like belief and like the church, even good things cannot become our gods because they'll fail us. And that is just such a hard a hard, hard season to be in. Um, so anyway, I just, I, but the, I, the, the thing about learning that, that really resonated with me was, um, all along, we talk a lot about how we do things here and we lift up voices here that the institutions of the denomination or the seminaries would say, oh, this person doesn't have the authority, this person doesn't have the training, this person doesn't have. And I always rail against that. And then learning that this young man was formed and malformed by his community and had this huge authority and platform given to him with no um, context, you realize like, oh, that's the ugly side of this, of, of this truth that I've been preaching for so hard for so long. So anyway, what are you thinking about? I am thinking about, um, a pastor in Alexandria, Virginia, that, um, I admire who has, um, incredible gifting. Um, he's the pastor of Alfred Street Baptist Church, um, his name is actually John Wesley. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Who is the founder of the Methodist Church yes. for the non-church nerds out uh, there. He's a, a fairly young African-American pastor, and um, I think he's been there 11 years. Um, the church was uh, several hundred. Now it's um, several thousand. And uh, months ago, he stood before his congregation and he said, for 11 years, there hasn't been a day I got out of bed and didn't think about something that needed to be done at the church. And he said, I'm tired. And um, he took a three-month sabbatical in, in the middle of yeah. you know the pandemic. And I connect that with our general presbyter at our presbytery meeting on Saturday, she gave her report and Jan basically said, and these are my words, not hers, but basically said a number of pastors have contacted her during the season and said, um, because of the pandemic, this isn't fun anymore and I'm out, I'm done. And, um, it's really made me think seriously about self-care and pace and right expectations of myself and of the church in this season. You know, I say, I mean, I can use the right words. Oh, this is a marathon, right? I, I know how to talk that talk. And yet I live <laughs> like it's a sprint. I mean, and I'm not, I'm not living in many ways, the things that I truly value. And I don't want to be, also, I've been just reading articles about, you know, pastoral burnout, pastoral depression in this season. And I don't want to be self-deceived, right? That um, on the one hand, I say, oh, I, I know I'm not, superhuman. I know, I know I'm not a Superman and yet I'm, I'm acting as if, yeah, I, I can do it all yeah. and then hit a wall. 
And um, well, what I think is so interesting about that is, and I try to say this a lot, people will often come to me and, you know, I'll be arranging a meeting or reaching out to someone and they'll say something like, well, you're so busy. And I really have learned to say, I am not. And that feels so scary to say. Yes. Because if you say you're not busy, it feels like you're saying you're not important and that you're admitting that you do nothing of value. Yes. Because people who are important and people who have value are busy. They got stuff to do. And so when you say, I am not busy, that feels like a shameful confession. But what I have learned is if I can't say I am not busy, it, to people in my community who value me in my community, then um, I'm telling them that they always have to be busy too, yes. right? Yep. So I try really hard to say to people, no, you know what, I'm not busy. And that doesn't mean that I'm cheating as your pastor. And that doesn't mean that I am not an important person. And that doesn't mean that I'm not making valuable contributions to the world. What it means is I'm not busy because I think it's faithful to choose to not be busy. And even saying this right now, like it feels scary to say it out loud. It feels like you're admitting that you're lazy or that you don't care or that you're selfish. But I think that what we have to do is tell the truth that God doesn't need us to be busy in order for us to be faithful and that if our churches are powered by the Holy Spirit, then our working ourselves to exhaustion and our busyness are redundant at best and deeply unfaithful and pride filled at worst. And so, but I think about it a lot that it, it is pastoral care to my congregation to say, I am not busy because then what I am doing is saying, you're allowed to not be busy too. And you're allowed to set limits. Otherwise, I'm saying like, well, I'm busy because I'm a pastor. And what I do is so much more important than what you do, or which I'm, is crap. Or I'm busy and you all should be busy. Correct. Correct. And that's just, we believe that God can be God all by God's self. Mm -hmm. And it's not that we don't believe that there's, there are just rhythms of labor and rest. Yes. And we believe in grace, not in earning, so that we have effort and then we believe that it is grace that makes our efforts fruitful, not, you know, exceptional, extraordinary exhaustion. Yeah, Paul says somewhere um, that it is God who wills in us to both do and believe or something like that. But his point is that the desire and the energy to work all come from God. Right. And just to be clear, like we're not saying... That we don't want, I mean, we are both fortunate enough to be full-time employees of our church. We're not saying that we are not working full-time. We're not saying that. But I work full-time. I'm grateful to work full-time. I have children, and I'm grateful to do the good work of parenting them. But what I mean is, I know that my work looks different, your work looks different, some of our time is spent in prayer. Some of our time is spent in reading and reflection. And I could fill my schedule with every meeting from 
the community that I was invited to. And I choose not to do that because I think a lot of those, not all, but a lot of those exist just to fill people's schedules so that they can say at the end of the day, I'm exhausted. So I must have been faithful. You can be exhausted and unfaithful. And I I think, you know, for me, an important uh, sort of principle is I've learned that if someone in my congregation asks me to do something, um, and I mean, my congregation is not that big. So let me be clear. Like I would say probably like 120 people who are meaningful connected to my, if someone in my congregation asks me to do something, the answer is yes. If someone visits my church more than twice, I'm going to try to have coffee with them. Like those are my priorities. If somebody from the community asks me to do something, I mean, and by the community, I mean like some institution, like the Red Cross has a meeting or Mecklenburg Ministry has a meeting. Even if it's about something I care about and think is gospel centered, I'm probably not going to say yes to that because I want to center my community and I don't want my community to get my leftovers. And I don't want to be following the crowd and looking at how everybody else is pastoring and say, okay, like I'm going to pastor like that. I, I really want to trust that the Holy Spirit is here and leading us. Um, but I, you know, to your point, I don't think that the Holy Spirit needs us to kill ourselves. To lay, to lay down your life is very different than to kill yourself. Yes. The, the pastor of Alfred Street Church was interviewed by a local um, D.C. news station, and they asked him about his energy level, and he said, I'm tired, not exhausted. And the interviewer asked, well, what's the difference between tired and exhausted? And he said, the joy. Yeah. He said, I haven't lost the joy of ministry. I'm, I'm physically, mentally tired, but I'm not exhausted. I'm not to the place where I've lost the joy yeah. of doing this work. Yeah, I mean, and actually, I was just thinking about this today because I was saying to you, I mean, honestly, that there's, there's a curve of reentry after a week off, which I was fortunate enough to have a week off last week. And I think it can be difficult to come back because you feel this pressure of like, okay, I've been off. And so that means I need to come back with like limitless energy and enthusiasm. And, you know, I'm, I'm not allowed to complain for seven years and whatever. I mean, like you just feel, um, but the reality is I'm super happy to be back and I'm super happy that this is the work I get to do. And I do get tired, but I think part the joy is the difference. And also if you're tired, you can rest if you're exhausted, even when you rest, you don't, you, you don't get relief. And so, and I think again, the world wants to enslave us and to teach us that we can never rest and Sabbath and rest are our birthright as followers of Jesus, as people who worship the Lord, who says it is finished Mm -hmm. to rest is our birthright and it is resistance. Um, and, and we need to embrace it. And if we won't rest as leaders of our congregations, then how can we expect anyone in our congregation to rest? And if we say, I'm going to serve this institution past all limits of my health and my sanity and my joy and my strength, then how can we turn around and expect other people not to serve the institutions they serve in the same way, right? Like, And serving the church is not more important or more spiritual than serving the hospital or serving the school or serving the bank, right? Like in all of those, it's about 
the stewardship, the total stewardship of your life. Right. And in all of those, it's about showing up and saying, I'm going to do what I do as to the Lord. So, I mean, you can't be a Christian gangster, but you can be a Christian almost anything else. And you can do what you do as to the Lord. And you can, you know, walk in every day looking for burning bushes. Mm -hmm. And you can see everyone, strive to see everyone through the eyes of awe and wonder as a person who is made in the image of God and a person for whom Christ died and a person with gifts to offer you and a person who has, to whom you can offer gifts, who is, you know, so we can do that in any space. And I've often felt like the church is like the, the church is like the back lines, right? Like the church is like, you know, it's like in a, in a war, it's like, you know, whatever, 45 miles from the active front. Like it's people who are living their lives in non-church spaces who are really the torchbearers and the flag bearers and the bringers of the gospel. And so we are, we exist to resource those um, whom the Lord is sending out. And, And we get to be sent out too, but I just, we have it all backwards. And so I just, you know, I want to say to, to people, yeah, we're allowed to rest. And, and if I say I'm not allowed to rest, then I'm implicitly telling you that you either I'm implicitly telling you that you're not allowed to rest, or I'm implicitly telling you that I'm more important than you are. And either of those things are just lies straight from the pit of hell that destroy community and the abundant life that God has given us. So that's good. Good for him. That is great. And good for you to be thinking about what is our, what is our pace? Like this is hard work. And look, I mean, if, if, transformation, if and when transformation happens in our church, it is a straight up miracle in line with the parting of the Red Sea. So we're going to be adjacent to it, but we're not going to be causing it to happen. And so we can get up and we can do our eight hours and then we can go to sleep. And I, I like that apocryphal story that I tell a lot. I'm sure it's not true about some Pope who would say to God, pray, who is supposed to have prayed every night before bed, like, Lord, I have worked hard for your church all day, but it's your church, not mine. And now I'm going to bed. <laughs> and I actually, that's good. I just think it's I beautiful, like right? Yes, like this yes. is not my church. Yes, that's actually this really is not helpful. my church. This is Jesus's church. So I'm going to come in. I'm going to do my best, which frankly is not very great. And either you're going to fill in the gaps or not, but I am for sure understanding that you don't work for me. <laughs> so if you're not going to make this garbage dump a paradise, it's not going to become one and that I mean I'm to be clear talking about myself not about my people so anyway what are you preaching about this week well over the past year our elder board has uh, referenced that place in the book of Esther I think it's uh, chapter 4 verse 14 um, for such a time as this and um, that has just been in my heart and mind for the past day or so, and I, I think um, we may land there on Sunday. You know, our church is in a place of, you know, not just transition because of the pandemic, though um, we're certainly in that. We're in a transition um, that started well before the pandemic. Um, we've been seeking to shift the culture and the ministry there for some years, Um to reflect our values of, of outreach into the neighborhood and uh, worship that is um, um, filled with joy and energetic. And um, 
And that's really tough work. And in the midst of this pandemic, when a number of people have said they were not coming back, and a number of people who have announced after <laughs> we returned to in-person services that um, they were leaving, it's very difficult for those who are left. And um, I sense the, um, not quite despair, it's too strong a word, but um, anxiety is probably the best word. And just want to remind people, and probably myself, if I'm being honest, of what we've been talking about, that this is the Lord's church. We're going to do our best. Ultimately, um, God will do what God wants to do with the church. Our joy and privilege in this season and calling is simply to be faithful. Mustard seed, yeah. flour poking through the asphalt, and to rest and rejoice in that walking in faithfulness. Well, let me just say, I love for such a time as this, and I love the message that the reality is Esther, in a very human way, is saying, it can't be me because I don't have the power and I don't have the authority and I don't have the resources to be effective. It has to be someone else. And so I think that message of, you know, to whom God calls, God equips. And this idea that God chooses the least likely and that God um, anoints those whose powerlessness will reveal the true source um, of, of the deliverance. Right. So I, I love that. Um, and I will just say as a confession that I hate the book of Esther <laughs> and I will doom myself to writing on it for you. I, I will not preach on it. I hate it so much. I hate the way that the book of Esther, um, reinforces, the patriarchy. And I understand that, I mean, Esther lived in a patriarchal time. I mean, the culture was and still is patriarchy. I mean, this is how humans organize culture and God shows up in the middle of our mess and, you know, works where it is. And that's not an endorsement, but I hate Esther. I hate the way she's always held up as this amazing, like, here's one for the ladies. Let's talk about Esther. When the reality is Mordecai is the center of that story. He is the one who is faithful. He is the one who is brave. He is the one who is courageous. And she is just the beautiful girl who does what is told of her. So I do not find her inspiring. I do not like the way she's been used in the church. I just, I mean, it's, it's probably even less Esther that I hate. I hate the, what people have done with her, yeah. right? I hate that for generations since the beginning. Sure. Esther has been lifted up to say, hey, ladies, what you need to do is look pretty and do what we tell you, and this is how the Lord will use you. And I hate how much women, I hate how easily satisfied we can be mm. <laughs> that we've so deeply internalized the patriarchy that we think like, oh, but here's a book named after 
named after a girl. So it's all good. Anyway, so I just, yeah, like I like Vashti. I'm down with Vashti. I think she's great. Um, And I do not like Esther. I do not find her. I find like that scene, I find Mordecai to be inspiring in that scene. When Mordecai says, hey, for such a time as this is you're here, right? Like I find that but I just I I don't like that we cast this as a story of sh- of her being a heroine and she's not a heroine and maybe there's something you can do with that right like we're not supposed to be the heroes and heroines in the story God is or you know maybe I don't know but I, and I just don't I wish the book were called Mordecai I'd have less of an issue with it anyway good luck with that have fun and you know acknowledge the patriarchy. <laughs> Yes, I certainly. I'm, I'm thinking of um, a commentary that I haven't picked up in a long time. But my um, faculty advisor and mentor and friend um, and um, feminist Bible scholar Johanna Boss wrote a commentary on that book. And um, uh, again, I haven't picked it up in years and years Peter. and years. I mean, she's just a puppet. Like the whole way through, she is a puppet. She does everything, single thing that Mordecai tells her to do from entering the beauty contest. That Like that's what makes me crazy. And it makes me crazy that the Christian church has been like, this is our ideal woman. She's beautiful and she does what people tell her to do. And I I mean, I just, I hate the uncritical way that people have used Mm. that book to reinforce really toxic gender roles. So I don't hate, I don't at all hate this idea of saying, a, if you are waiting to be used by God from a position of abundance and power and authority, you're going to miss your chance. Like, I don't, I don't hate the message of the book that out of our lack and out of our weakness, that that is where we're best positioned to be used. But like, I just, I hate, oh, I hate every single thing about it. I hate it so much. Yeah, it seems I to me it. that in that Can I just scene, tell you again? I hate it. I, I'm getting the feeling that you don't really like that book. I don't. Um, but but in that scene, um, I think Mordecai says to her something like, "You have this position of power. You have this position, this this high position, and if you think you can remain silent in these times and not be affected, then you are mistaken." Yeah, if I you- just hate him so much. I hate him so much. I just hate him so much. I really do. And, you know, obviously, clearly God was using him, and clearly God uses people I hate and are triggered by all the time, so that's just the way it works. God can make a donkey talk. But I just, I mean, like, obviously, they're all in danger. I mean, I think what he says to her is, if you think that your position will save you from Haman's noose, you're wrong, mm-hmm. and if you don't put allow yourself to be used, God will raise up deliverance from another source, and then will you be, and I mean, he's not wrong but I also just am like yeah but he's also not the one who's gonna go into the into the court chambers and potentially be executed on site right so just like I hear I mean clearly I'm just triggered by this book I just hear so much superior he's he just seems to be so matter-of-factly I mean here's the thing like Esther to Mordecai has been a token and a pawn all the way Mm. through right Mm -hmm. so Go into the beauty contest. It'd be good for us if you were queen. And then, like, go into the courtyard because it'll be great for us if you deliver us. And if not, like, who cares? Because you're just a woman and there's more of you other places, right? So, like, I just don't like him. I do not. 
I just, I'm not saying that I don't think that the story Mind is true and holy. Of discernment are picking up I'm that just saying, you have some issues with oh, this book. It's just, it is just, it's hashtag complicated. Anyway, better you than me. <laughs> so what are you preaching? I... <laughs> Clearly not, not Esther. More, not Esther. I have never in my life preached a sermon on Esther. And I will not put the Lord my God to the test, but it is my sincere intention to never in my life preach on the on the book of Esther or lead a Bible study on it ever. You know what? I, I don't think I've ever like preached it. a sermon from Esther. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, why would you? It's a girl book and you're a boy. <laughs> Esther's just for women's Bible studies and promise keeping <laughs> sermons. Anyway. Um, <laughs> Purity balls. Esther's great for a purity ball. Anyway, um, I am going to preach the last series on our Mind of Christ, the last sermon in our Mind of Christ series on the parables. And I am going to preach on the parable of the um, Pharisee and the, is it publician? Is that how you're supposed to say that? I'm not going to use that word because it doesn't exist. The publican? But I, yeah. Yeah, clearly. I don't know. But the Pharisee in the center and Jesus is watching people pray in the temple and he watches this Pharisee who's a religious leader and who is living a life that is widely admired and honored, who who comes before God and basically lists off his accomplishments and, um, you know, gives thanks that he is better than other people. I, I hear this um, Pharisee prayers a lot in churches. Um, people will say like, oh God, we thank you for our partnership with the local elementary school and for the way that our children filled up backpacks for their children. And uh, we thank you God for that. I mean, like, just like you're thanking God for your own awesomeness. And that's what this guy was doing. And he was thanking God that he wasn't like all these other groups of sinners. Um, and then, and then this man who is a sinner comes before, I mean, they're both sinners, but this man who knows he's a sinner comes before God and just, um, you know, beats his breast and, you know, is, is undone by his grief over his own sinfulness and cries out for mercy. And Jesus says, you know, one of these people went home justified. And, and I love this idea that, you know, it strikes me in this season that, you know, the, the one man went to worship to be justified and the other went to worship to be reconciled. And mm. I just think that there are a lot of Christian communities and I can't speak of any other faith communities, but there are a lot of Christian communities that exist to justify their members that basically exist to be a place where people can show up every so often and be reminded that they're the ideal. They are the default. Other people are the problem and just get that mirrored back to them that, that they are justified before the Lord. And that a true Christian community exists not to justify people, but to reconcile people to Jesus and, and a place where we can just see the gap between our false petty righteousness and God's offensively gracious righteousness. And we can see that gap and we can mourn it. And then we can find and experience the extraordinarily humbling, vulnerable forgiveness um, that changes us and doesn't justify us, but changes us. And so that is what I want. And that's the mind of Christ, right? That, you know, we think like, oh, the better faith community would be the community where everybody can walk up front and say, I'm great. And that's what we think is a successful faith community. But in the mind of Christ, it is the man who knows he's a sinner who is actually 
experiencing from the act of worship what worship exists to do, which is to reconcile us to God. And so that is what I want to play with this week. We'll see what happens. Yeah, I, I think it's just really, really freeing and powerful to be in a community where you can be your full self and um, admit your faults and receive forgiveness, healing. Right. Um, and not in a community where you're constantly hiding. I hope they don't find out that I fill or in the blank. If they find out this part of me, then I'll no longer be welcome here. I'll no longer be liked. I'll no longer or be Or a community that exists to tell you that you're okay when you're not okay. I mean, and you and I have talked about this before and, and recently about being in a sermon and saying something true and then just feeling the room turn and this idea of like, oh gosh, I've gone too far. And like people are deeply uncomfortable and we can be deeply uncomfortable because we've made people deeply uncomfortable and because we're people. And so we're also uncomfortable on an individual level, but also just being like, okay, but this place does not exist to make us feel comfortable. This place exists to tell the truth. Correct. And I think, you know, I think we get confused because Jesus is a comforter. Jesus comforts those who are grieving, those who are broken, those who are mourning, but Jesus does not comfort triumphant people. Jesus doesn't comfort people who are self-righteous. Jesus convicts them. And that, you know, like I, I'm not a Jonathan Edwards fan and I'm not going to preach a sinners in the hand of an angry God sermon, but I do think like we ought to be a little more in awe of the terrible righteousness of the Lord than we are. And we start thinking of Jesus, like Jesus is big bird or something. And that's just a real problem anyway. So I'm sorry. I can't get over big bird. I mean, <laughs> I have a, I have a way with words. <laughs> well, and, and a kindergartner and a kindergartner. That's true. Who does not like big bird? Do you know? Okay. never mind. I'm going to go off on a tangent. Uh, Sesame street in file this with random information you do not need to know but sesame street really now is targeted at two and three year olds it is not targeted at um kindergarten like it's really for younger kids wow so my kindergartner is way too cool way too cool we're into bluey and dollar bucks so um hey we've been talking at you for a very very long time and we're having a good time and we hope you are so thank you for listening and if you want to find out more about what god is doing at derida presbyterian church uh, you can go to their website which is d-r-i-t-a-pres.org and you can um, go to their youtube channel and listen and watch old services. Um, soon there's going to be a brand new streaming platform. So keep your eyes out Coming for soon. that on their website. Um, and you can also listen to Yolando's messages on their Podbean um, podcast, which is Deride a Pros podcast. And if you want to find out more about what God is doing at The Grove, you can go to our website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org. You can um, worship with us in person in our sanctuary if you will wear a mask. If you don't want to wear a mask, you can still worship with us on our live stream, which is on our Facebook page. Um, and it still counts. You're still there. It's still, it's still important. And, um, if you want to listen to old messages from The Grove, you can go to our podcast, The Grove Church Podcast, which is on iTunes or wherever 
you get your podcasts. So wherever you get them, you can get the Grove Church podcast. Uh, So thank you so much. Oh, and we have a YouTube channel too. I'm just like, we're just getting it up to date and And it's it's good. Thank you. Yes. I have. Okay. So (laughs) (laughs) the people around me are way better than me. Yes. So I really like your setup. Um, you're, you're, you, if you haven't been in the Grove Sanctuary, there's a, 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 a large stained glass window in the back. Uh, it's right at which eye is the level, front, <laughs> which is the front. Yes, the, it's the front of the sanctuary. Yes, but it's behind the preacher, and um, you are right in front of that glass, and it is, it is a very nice visual. Well, thank you. Yes, thank you. I, I clicked on. I was like, ah, this. Visually, this is fantastic. Well, thanks. Yes. Know we have really, we God has been so gracious and sent us really, really talented AV folks, which is just nothing that I am gifted in, and it makes such a big difference. And um, it, because it's how people can can join us for worship, and I'm so great. I'm so so grateful. So it's anyway, well done. It's well done. Well, thanks to them, it is well done. Thanks to the enormous grace of God, Carl Schodal is one of our our main folks who makes that happen. And, Um, It's just, he's a gift, a gift, a gift. So um, anyway, that was the tangent. But thanks, if you're still listening, thank you. And we will talk to you next week.